I recently got my hands on some really compelling data. Uh, and here, here's the thing, organizations that have made the switch to fundraises, digital fundraising platform, are seeing average online revenue growth of 77%. Now, that number is really staggering. But at the same time, you know, knowing the fundraise solution, it's also completely believable for me. I've been in this game for 25 years helping nonprofits uh, grow and, and identify ways to level up their, their fundraising. And regularly, uh, I find myself referring uh, charities and ministries that are looking for ways to speed up their growth, to streamline processes, and to create a better experience for donors online um, over to my friends at Fundraise. So I recommend that you talk to Fundraise today to see how your organization can grow uh, with Fundraise. And you can, you can reach them at fundraise, F-U-N-R-A-I-S-E dot org. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, your home for all things fundraising and nonprofit leadership. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a favor to ask. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate the show and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact in the world. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson. Uh, I want to take a, a brief second just to acknowledge that the audio quality on this episode might be a little bit lower than normal. Uh, the reason for that is that I'm traveling. I'm in a hotel room right now without my standard recording kit and microphone and all that kind of stuff. But I did want to um, take a second to, to acknowledge that the, the content that I'm going to talk about today is, is pretty important. So I I want to get this out, even though I don't have you know my entire recording kit with me. So uh, please bear with me, and I hope that the value you get from the content uh, supersedes the the maybe scratchiness of, of this audio. I also want to take a second to um, thank my friends over at Fundraise for uh, sponsoring this episode. You know, one of the fantastic things about their platform right now is that they are seeing double digit growth uh, in online revenue for just about every organization that that adopts their their platform and, and uses their fundraising tools for um, to improve online giving, whether it's peer to peer or sustainer or single gift fundraising online. Um, so check them out. And uh, the other the other side benefit of, of working with fundraise is they're just great people and uh, they'll treat you right. So let's get into this now. I, I want to talk today about what I've been referring to in the industry uh, as a better way to fundraise. And I don't know if you've heard any of the interviews I've done on on other podcasts recently or, or seen any of the stuff that I've written and shared on LinkedIn, but I'm talking a lot these days about the idea of there being a better way to fundraise. And, and really the, the genesis for that is is multifold. And, and first is I my, my good friend and, and colleague Derek Baker, um, uh, the, the founder and, and president and CEO of Dickerson Baker, he said recently that, you know, we, we make this arbitrary decision that, that says that, you know, a $2 million donor should be treated really well and given, you know, impact reporting and stewardship and special engagement. But, you know, a, a $200 donor uh, doesn't deserve all of that because their giving is smaller. And and we, we just decide for them that because we can't scale an operation to, to give them the things that that we give a $2 million donor, that they don't need them. And the, the reality is that those two donors want exactly the same thing. You know, they, and, and really, I, it boils down to three things. One, they want to be uh, thanked and appreciated uh, for their contribution. Two, they want to know that their gift is making a difference. And three, uh, they want to be able to see firsthand the impact that their giving is making 
on you know saving or changing or improving lives of, of whoever it is that you serve or whatever situation it is that you're working on if it's you know, environment or animals or something like that and so to to assume that just because there's more zeros on one check or another that 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 donor deserves a, a higher level of engagement is really um silly and, and ultimately detrimental to to your organization's success because we we know that when donors are treated well uh, they stick around longer and if we could all fix our retention rate problems that we have across the sector that would be a huge win we also know that when donors are treated well the likelihood that they give uh you know a additional gifts and larger gifts over time is is also significantly improved so not investing in in those you know lower dollar donors if you will uh, is a mistake and and so as we started thinking about what would it mean to craft a better way to raise money uh, in the nonprofit sector you know that was that was sort of foundational to to what we were talking about and and really what we see is, this challenge of particularly when it comes to annual fund or, or what some might call, you know, your direct response fundraising donors, the, the donors that are responding to your direct mail, your emails, they're giving online, things like that. Um, we've industry wide, we've focused so much on being efficient that we haven't really understood the mistakes in that and the, the limitations to effectiveness when we chase efficiency. You know, it's recently I, I wrote an article about this at, at a broader level, um, and and one of the other key insights that's driving this idea around finding a better way to fundraise and, and encouraging organizations to do this differently is some of the data that we're seeing uh, economically, and and just the the fact that you know giving patterns today don't match what they have over the last several decades. Um, and the you know the fact that the the fundraising landscape and the philanthropic giving landscape has really changed, um, but but fundamentally agencies that serve nonprofits, particularly the direct response agencies, they haven't really changed, and their business models are designed not to change, um, nor are they changing fast enough to help most ministries and other organizations get ahead of what's changing in the environment and the economy to really create a meaningful positive impact for, for organizations and their missions. You know, we, we continue to see some of the lowest levels of donor retention and donor participation uh, in, in decades. And, and at the same time, <clears throat> we also see a challenge that for most organizations, they're not getting the same volume of new donors supporting their organization for the first time uh, every year that they have in the past. So you've got this double whammy of, keeping fewer of your existing donors and adding fewer new donors. And all, you know, in all, what that means is most donor files are shrinking or they're staying static at best. Um, and, and, you know, it's masked right now by an increase in dollars given to many charities. But when you get under the hood and look at that, it's not, you know, you, we, we can't claim success around that. Because what we're seeing is that most, if not all, of that increase in revenue is coming from a handful of major donors. And so if we don't start behaving differently and treating all of our supporters differently, um, we're going to be in for a world of hurt when those major donors step back or, you know, when one of them passes away and all of a sudden we don't have access to that revenue 
or they decide that, you know, they, they've given to your charity for a time and now they're going to shift their investment strategy and, and give elsewhere to solve a different problem. I mean, there, there's a lot of risk that we put on our um, on our mission if we're not diversifying that fundraising portfolio and also building really deep relationships at every level of our donor file so that we have, um, you know, some flexibility and some protection against one or two donors who, who really could, you know, today they're the donors who are making our program, but they really could break it, um, you know, not, not because they're doing something nefarious in the future, but just because they, like I said, they either pass away or, or their interest wanes and they give elsewhere. And all of a sudden, a significant part of your revenue might be gone. You know, at the same time, I, I was shocked by some data that I looked at um, in late December. So Pew Charitable Trust released an assessment of aggregate household income. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this was around mid-December. I'll link to it in the show notes of, of this episode. But they tracked aggregate income held by U.S. households from like 1970 to 2020. And they, they broke that data into three different cohorts. They had like a lower income cohort, a middle income cohort, and an upper income cohort. And what they found, not shocking, is that, you know, the, the lower income households, their... Um, aggregate household income had basically remained flat for 50 years. You know, in 1970, that cohort held like 10% of, of all household income. And in 2020, it fell slightly, but it was it was at 8%, right? So it wasn't a, a significant decline in aggregate income. <clears throat> Over that same time period, upper income households, they, they saw a massive increase in income you know, from 29% in 70 to 50% in 2020. So really, you know, the, the aggregate income took off at that upper level. And uh, again, not shocking, just because of what we know about how, you know, economics and math work, that it, it, it's not surprising to see that the upper income households continued to grow their wealth. The, the part for me that was most concerning in everything that Pew had uh, for, for that 50-year assessment is what they discovered about middle-income households, and, and you know, those households saw their aggregate, aggregate income plummet from 62% in 1970 to 42% in 2020, and that you know that's a massive decline in income. And what concerned me most about that is that those middle-income people, those are the people who traditionally make up the quote unquote, bottom of the pyramid, the annual fund donor, the person who's writing you a 20, 50, 100, $250, $500 check, you know, once or twice a year, that is middle income America. So, you know, as we look at everything that's going on, um, you know, I, I have this in the back of my mind, just, you know, as an ongoing concern that we are facing a, a potential crisis in in the charitable sector because the people who make up the bulk of all giving um, in most organizations, uh, they, they've seen uh, a significant decline in their personal aggregate income over 50 years. And, and so, you know, not only are current economic factors probably causing them a little bit of heartburn and, and maybe causing people to sit on the sidelines for a while with their with their giving and, and just kind of wait out the economy. But but we have it, it's just harder for them to access the, the you know, uh, disposable income that they might have had previously. 
to, to be able to give to charities. And, and so when I look at that, my, my first thought is, well, one, uh, that tells me if I'm running a ministry or other nonprofit, I better be focusing on major gifts because the, the very few donors that I have who can give, you know, four five, six and seven figure gifts, they're going to end up carrying my organization for a period. Uh, but the second thing that it makes me think is I need to start treating all of my donors, including those middle income households, like a major donor, because if if they are still giving and many are still giving, they're just giving at a, a lower level or they're giving less frequently, then I, I want to make sure that I am engaging them in the most meaningful way so that uh, they choose to continue to partner with me versus, you know, uh, any other organization. Or they say, you know what, your organization is one of my top two or three <coughs> charitable partners. And I'm going to choose to invest deeply in you versus spreading my giving to 10 or 15 charities like we know many, uh, many donors do as well. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, but when, when I think about sort of the traditional high volume, low relationship quality direct marketing programs that a lot of organizations have and that a lot of uh, marketing uh, companies have have built over time. Uh, you know, there, there was a time when those were effective, but today, you know, when, when the average gift in those programs ranges anywhere from, you know, $15 to $50 or somewhere in there, um, knowing that most of the people who give those gifts are are operating under a completely different and more restrictive economic reality means we really have to behave differently. And instead of trying to squeeze every last drop of discretionary income from a shrinking group of, of donors who've seen their you know, total uh, income uh, at the household level decline by 50% over the last half century, I think we, we need to completely rethink how we fundraise so that we can provide a better experience to donors, we can more meaningfully engage them in our work and create true partnerships uh, with our supporters versus just looking at them as sort of the ATM we go to when when we have a need and and then, you know, walk away from at any other time. And, and so, you know, I, I've distilled this into a set of, I don't know, seven or eight different thoughts about, you know, what it might look like to create a better way to, to fundraise. And I just want to walk through those with you here. And I would invite, you know, any of, of you who are listening to, um, to engage in this conversation with me, you know, this is this is not a manifesto. This is this is a couple of ideas on how we can do things better. Um, but certainly, I'm not the smartest person uh, in the industry by by any means, and and I I welcome uh, a lot of feedback, and I would love to hear from from listeners who who have a thought on this, or maybe who have tried some of this and either succeeded or failed, and what you learned. And I, I'd love to have that conversation. But here here's what you know when I think of creating a better way to fundraise. Here's what that looks like. Um, first and foremost, it looks like having a comprehensive fundraising strategy that prioritizes relationships over transactions. So instead of chasing every donor and, and you know soliciting them 27 times a year so that you can get that you know one more gift and <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not knocking getting one more gift you know one, one in you know an increase in generosity can come in any different way but but if we if we focus on the transaction and not the relationship 
um, donors can spot that a mile away and, and it causes them to have, you know, pause for supporting us. And the other thing you ought to think about, particularly as, as we see more giving coming from those donors who are giving, say, $1,000 gifts and, and higher, is they tend not to give a high frequency of gifts within a 12-month period. When we look at the data, what we see is once you kind of cross that threshold of giving, say, $1,000 or more, uh, there, there's typically a higher level of intentionality and planning in that giving. And so we, we often see that those donors give, you know, two or three times throughout the year at most. Sometimes it's just one, right? So if we're chasing high volume of transactions versus saying, let's be strategic and thoughtful about the relationship, um, we're actually working against ourselves because we're working off the same clock that uh, that the donor works from. And, and we're basically fighting against them to change their ingrained behavior, which is really dangerous. The, the second thing that I think we need to, to have a better way of, of fundraising is, is really an intentional plan to engage those high net worth donors and potential donors in our community and invite them to, to make a transformational impact in our mission, you know, in a way that meets with their personal philanthropic objectives. And, and so that is, that's a long way to say, make it about them, not about you. And focus a high level of um, intentionality and budget and time on engaging the donors who can move the needle fastest for you. You know, um, Derek Baker, our you know, Dickerson Baker's uh, president and CEO, he, he's fond of saying, bigger gifts just add up faster. And, and there's so much truth in that, right? You know, if if you've got to raise a million dollars, it's a lot easier to get that from two or three donors than to try to string together 50,000 transactions um, of smaller gifts that, that would make up that million dollars. You, know, you end up at the same uh, end goal, but you expend a lot more energy, effort, and cost if you're trying to do that with, with small dollar gifts than with, you know, stacking up larger dollar gifts. And, and I'm not by any means saying smaller dollar donors aren't meaningful or aren't important and we shouldn't focus on them. But I am saying that today with what we know about the economy, what we know about the market, what we know about the trends of giving uh, across the charitable sector, you would be foolish not to have a, an intentional plan to engage with high net worth donors uh, to make sure that they are maximizing their relationship and investment with your organization. The, the third thing that I think you need in order to really um, embrace a better way to fundraise and, and you know, create greater mission impact is a direct response fundraising program that includes you know, what I call like intentional and specific cadence for mid-level and major donors that, again, acknowledges the difference in the way they behave. So instead of sending that mid-level donor you know, 18 solicitations a year, um, and and you know being frustrated that they only give to one or two, start to rethink what that needs to look like and understand what a relationship um, you know with that constituent uh, should be. And we find that you know particularly with those mid-level and, and major gift uh, supporters, uh, you know a cadence throughout the year that both honors how they already give but then also acknowledges their impact um, and you know, reports back on, on what their giving has achieved, shows uh, authentic appreciation. And I don't just mean like 
a thank you letter when they send a gift, right? I mean, appreciation on top of that. Those touch points uh, with a couple of solicitations woven throughout the year as well, in a different way that that's much more um, akin to how they consume information and how they review, you know, proposals and things like that in the rest of their life. That kind of experience and cadence can really move the needle um, on mid-level and, and major donor giving. And in fact, I, I've personally run uh, fundraising programs at the mid and, and major level where, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, in a in a six-week period, we've raised millions of dollars simply by treating these donors differently um, and, and then stewarding them over time in a more effective way and being able to repeat that on an annual basis. So um, I think that's a really important way um, to, to start to behave differently and also to achieve different results. The, the next thing that we need in order to continue to build toward a better way to, to fundraise in the future is increased levels of uh, relationship cultivation, impact reporting, and stewardship. And, and here's the kicker, without always including an ask. You know, and, and this is uh, one of those things that there's often been a lot of debate in the direct response industry because the, the prevailing thought is, well, goodness, if you're going to spend the money to mail something to someone, you better put an ask in there because otherwise you're going to lose money. <clears throat> and there's some reality in that, right? There's some truth in that. Uh, I, I've, I've tested this and, and sure enough, when you send uh, a letter and you don't make an ask, you don't get many gifts. So if your goal is to get gifts, then yes, I, I would say you should include an ask. But what we found, um, you know, I tested this a few years back with my, my really good friends over at Mel Trotter Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, we, we mailed a series of what we called no-ask packages. They literally said on the outer envelope, this is not about your money. And, and the goal was to, to convey to their supporters how important they were at many different levels and, and to, to share with them stories of impact. And so, you know, those, those mailings didn't generate much revenue there. Some people gave when they got those just because there's a sort of a, a trained, you know, mindset in the donor that when they receive a mailing, that's what you expect them to do, right? <clears throat> but at the same time, many didn't. And so on paper, when you look at those, those mailings, uh, if you're looking at it from a pure sort of cost and income perspective, those look like losers. But what we discovered is that the people who received those no-ask packages at the end of the year, they were 49% more valuable on a per-donor basis that year than the people who hadn't received those mailings. So, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, you know, you'd be stupid not to invest in a couple of no ask communications with your donors where you're just telling them stories of impact and you're talking to them about the fact that their giving has made, you know, a meaningful change in someone's life or in, in the issue that you're focused on. Because if you can generate anywhere near a 49% increase in annual value per donor by doing that. Um, I, I would give up, you know, short-term dollars to an appeal all day long to get that kind of increased value. Uh, because once a donor has reached that level, there's a really high likelihood that if you continue to engage them in that way over time, they're going to continue to give at that higher level. And so you're actually maximizing their philanthropic impact, um, even though 
you you maybe are taking a little bit of a hit on on you know current month revenue in the month of September, let's say. <clears throat> the, the next thing that I think we need if we're if we're gonna pursue this better way is um, a lot more robust and in-depth storytelling um, and reporting and and two-way communication between us and our donors. So we are really good in this industry, in this sector, about pushing content out. And we are largely really bad about pulling response in, unless that response is a check. So, you know, uh, Greg Warner over at Market Smart is, is really sort of, I, I would say, um, on the bleeding edge of, of this idea because he's doing some fantastic work with donor surveys to really get at donor sentiment to get at intentionality, to get at, you know, uh, understanding what motivates supporters and, and, you know, why it is they support the organizations that they do. So to check Greg out and, and look at what he's doing, because I, I think it's really smart. But um, even if, if you're not going to, you know, say partner with MarketSmart, I would say, you know, creating opportunities for donors to give you feedback and then actually doing something is really important. Um, you could do that with a survey monkey survey. You could do it with, you know, embedded surveys on your website. A lot of organizations use surveys as a way to drive response in their direct mail appeals. And, and those surveys are more, more so the kind of surveys that are intended to um, create a pattern of yes responses so that when you finally get to the ask, the donor is quote unquote conditioned to respond with a yes. And those work. But, you know, what I find when I look at those surveys is they don't capture any real meaningful data about the donor or about why she gives or what her motivation is or why she loves you. Um, and, and so I would say for, you know, if you're doing surveys like that, take a minute to, to rethink those surveys, get better in, insight and information from your donor if you're already asking them questions, and then actually capture that information because that's the other missing piece is so many organizations, if they send out a, a paper survey like that or even a, a digital survey, the, the goal is to get the donor to respond with a gift more so than it is to get them to share information. And so many organizations don't even capture and catalog the data coming from those surveys. And I think it's a huge mistake. The more that we can build a repository of information that the donor actually shared with us in their own words, um, like that's a gold mine for relationship building. And if you're not doing something with that, you really ought to start today. And the other part of this is, is the storytelling, right? So um, there is so much data that supports the, the idea that donors are motivated first and foremost by storytelling, not by facts, not by figures, not by knowing that you're rated with X number of stars by all the charity rating gurus. They want to know the story. And, and so the more that you can tell stories that show the donor how she can be a hero in, in solving whatever crisis it is, whatever problem it is that your organization is on a mission to solve, um, the more likely you are to engage her at the heart level, get a contribution, but also retain her as a, a long-term partner. And that's not to say that you don't need the data. Right. You absolutely need impact data. You need outcomes data. Those things, um, they do two things. One, they validate for the donor when she goes to give that gift 
that it's a good decision. And two, um, they, they're critical in reporting back and showing the impact so that you can actually, um, you know, can, you know, re- remind that donor why it was a good decision to give to you in the first place and that on an ongoing basis, you're worthy of continued investment. So the data is critical, but you're not going to spark the gift and you're certainly not going to spark a transformational gift if you're not using more in-depth storytelling that actually tugs at the heartstrings and lays out your case in a meaningful and, and emotionally compelling way. <clears throat> the, the next thing that we need uh, to, to really fundraise better is a much bigger focus on inviting and encouraging donors to give from their assets instead of their cash. And here, here's a couple of pieces of information that you need to know about this. So Dr. Russell James at Texas Tech has studied this uh, for a long time and has a ton of data to support this. Here, here's the interesting factors. Uh, organizations that asked donors to give from their assets meaning non-cash things, right? So meaning their donor advised fund, their um, individual retirement account, their stock portfolio, their real estate holdings, anything that's not cash. Those organizations that that asked for assets in addition to cash uh, raised twice as much money over, I believe it was a five-year period, than their um, counterparts who only solicited cash. So, you know, that, that in and of itself is a huge um, warning shot across the bow, in my opinion, that uh, if if we really want to be effective and if we're really focused on accomplishing mission, uh, we've got to start prioritizing soliciting assets. The other reason why this is really important is, is simply a, a math reason. So 10% of all wealth in the U.S. is held in cash. That means 90% is held in assets other than cash. And so rather than fighting over the 10% scraps that every other charity is fighting over, don't you think it makes more sense to just say, well, wait a minute, let me ask the donor to give from all of her wealth instead of just this little sliver that I'm used to asking for when I ask her to write a check or give me a credit card gift. And, and I've, I've found when I've tested this for, for a number of charities that you know it, it unlocks some really meaningful conversations with donors and it creates transformational giving. I, I remember one donor who who went from giving a $3,000 cash gift, you know, his check checkbook gift, if you will, to an $85,000 uh, distribution from his assets when we asked him. And, and the one reason why he gave such a big gift, you know, obviously there was a compelling story. There was a really strong call to action and, and an opportunity to, to make a meaningful impact. But when they asked him about that specific, you know, amount, he said, well, you asked for it. You told me I could give through my assets and I just didn't realize that before. So I did. And, and we've seen it play out time and again. And, and, you know, I, I've seen, uh, organizations, you know, go from give a donor giving 500 or, or even a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars to giving five and six figure gifts when they start to give from their assets. And, and, and so, you know, the, those two are really important reasons. The other thing though, is it's, you know, once a donor understands that they can give from their assets, it tends to be um, the, the way that they continue to give over time. And, and so that means that you have a higher likelihood of securing larger gifts over time. 
because the donor is, is going to become you know, more accustomed to it. And it's also a lot better for your donors, right? If they can offset you know, tax liabilities and different things because they're giving smarter um, and because you've told them about this way that they could give smarter, that's just going to, you know, to increase the likelihood that they um, feel more deeply invested in you because you've helped them be a better philanthropist at that point. And, and that means something to most people. So um, all of those reasons, you know, make the argument for me that that you know, ministries and other organizations really need to double down on talking to donors about how they can give from their assets instead of their cash because it has a meaningful uh, and positive impact both for the donor and for the charity. But the next thing that I think we need to change in order to, to really embrace this better way of fundraising is we need to think about our expense budgets and the process that we use to, to budget for the year in a more nimble and responsive way so that you can shift your spend from low performing efforts to high performing efforts uh, regardless of you know what channel or, or program those investments are in or what audiences they're focused on. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say that in your organization, you're spending money to do um, social media marketing to get monthly sustainers, uh, sustaining donors. And, and let's say that you're also spending money to get new donors in uh, direct mail acquisition. Well, if you find that your social media marketing is actually doing three times better than you had projected, and you're instead of investing in getting sustainers right now, you're netting money while you're getting those new sustainers, then I would argue strongly that you should put every dollar possible into that social media sustainer acquisition until you reach a point of diminishing returns and, and, and you should move money from direct mail acquisition to get there. Um, because you're, you're going to make more both in the short term and the long term by, by prioritizing your investment over on that sustainer acquisition. But most organizations have this sort of set it and lock uh, approach in their budget where, where they will say, oh, no, no, that's my direct mail money. I, ca I can't move it to, to social media. Or, well, that's that's Bob's budget and not Jane's budget. And so, you know, Bob can only spend Bob's budget. He can't spend Jane's budget. And, you know, I mean, all, all these sort of, you know, archaic uh, approaches to budgeting and, and you know, these artificial limitations that, that organizations put on themselves to have control versus saying, well, how do we best spend our money for growth? And so, you know, the, the savvy organizations, the ones who are really moving the needle on this are saying, no, 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 this is one budget for the entire program. And even though we might have different people managing aspects of it, we are going to be nimble and responsive to the donor community and to the marketplace. And we're going to shift our investment to whatever gets us the best return possible in the shortest amount of time. And if, if you don't have um, internal structure to, to support that kind of thinking and external partners who can actually flip the switch quickly and deliver that kind of change for you, um, you're, I think you're, you're losing a lot of opportunity. The, the last and final uh, thing that I would share with you about, you know, what we need to be doing differently to, to um, really embrace a better way to fundraise is I think we've got to shift aggressively away from this idea that donor file size and gross revenue matter. 
um, as as success metrics for our organization. And, and I hear this all the time from charities. In fact, I was I was talking to one recently who they were super proud that they had doubled the size of their donor file over the last couple of years. And and you know, on the surface, that looked really great. But when you get one layer below that, and and I saw that you know they had a a five percent retention rate, uh, I was pretty shocked. I've I'm not sure I've ever seen a retention rate that low. And, and then, you know, I, I looked even one layer deeper and I saw, oh, wait a minute. There, donors who give $500 or more in a single gift, they actually have a 3% retention of those donors. So, <clears throat> excuse me, they, the, you know, arguably the donors who could make the biggest financial impact for their organization were running away at really high levels, you know, 97% were saying, I gave you one gift and the experience was so bad, I'm not doing this again. And, and we see this time and again with organizations when, when the focus is on, you know, top line growth, how do I get a bigger donor file? How do I, you know, add more names and acquisition? How do I grow my revenue without focusing on how do I grow my net revenue? You know, what I can keep to spend on mission. And, and in part, this is due to, you know, maybe not knowing and not understanding how um, donor behavior changes and how the, the financial aspects of an organization are, are driven. But I think it's also in part due to the fundraising industry and, and you know, fundraising agencies that focus on donor acquisition. I, I, I remember I saw something recently where the, the head of a, a direct response fundraising agency said, oh, donor participation rates are at the lowest level they've been in a decade. That means you have to do more acquisition. And on its face, that sounds like a, a you know, sensible thing. Yes, it's, your file is shrinking, do more acquisition. But you know, when you step back for a minute and you, you actually apply logic to the conversation, you think, well, holy crap. That means that we're not optimized internally to keep the donors that come through the door. So why would I spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars more to get more new donors right now if I can't hold on to the ones that I already have? Like, that's just stupid. It's fiscally irresponsible and it's a poor use of donor dollars to say that the solution is just to grow bigger when we can't hold on to the donors that we have. And, and so, you know, for that reason, I, I say, you know, it's critical that we actually think about strategize and enact changes to retain more donors. And, you know, we talk a lot in this industry about donor retention, but what I find um, frustrating and, and demoralizing is that often it stops at talk because no one wants to make the changes to budget, to staffing, to, you know, operations that are required to actually retain more donors and invite those donors to be more closely aligned, both um, philanthropically, but but emotionally and strategically, so that we keep more of them and they want to be partnered with us. Uh, we instead say, yeah, donor retention is important, but if we can't fix it by doing simple stuff, let's just go spend more money in acquisition. And and that you know that just puts us on this hamster wheel where we are fighting for slim margins and we we have no money to actually improve. Um, on mission, or even to take care of our people. And so, you know, th those are the kind of things that I look at and I say, we are in for a shock in the next decade if we don't start to think and act differently 
And, and that's why I firmly believe that we've got to embrace this better way to fundraise. And, you know, I, I would just say if any of this resonates with you, um, I would welcome you to reach out to me. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. You can email me at andrew.olson at dickersonbaker.com. Um, you can hit me on, on my own website. Um, but I would welcome a conversation about this um, as it applies to the sector, as it applies to your own organization, as it even applies to your career as a fundraiser. Um, we deserve better. Our donors deserve better. And the people that we serve deserve better. And so for all of those reasons, um, I am on a mission to create a better way to fundraise. Uh, my team and my partners at Dickerson Baker are fully behind this. And, and we believe deeply that there is a better way. And I just invite you into the conversation. So I welcome, to, welcome hearing from any of you uh, how, how you uh, see this and, and you know whether or not you see that there's a path to a better way in your organization as well. Thanks again for joining us today for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review so we can get our message out to more nonprofit leaders. And as always, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or at andrew at andrewolson.net. Be well, friends.